Hi everyone and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. Halloween is almost here, looming round the corner waiting to pounce and frighten us all, I'm sure. As Halloween draws ever nearer, it signals the return of ghoulish tales and stories, petrifying pumpkins, eerie dark misty nights, and maybe the odd ghost or two. Considered a liminal time when spirits can cross into the land of the living, this was once a time when celebrants believed they had to appease the spirits to ensure their cattle and land would survive the winter. Liminal is defined in the dictionary as relating to a transitional or initial stage of a process, or occupying a position at or on both sides of a boundary or threshold. The term comes from the Latin word limens, or threshold. In anthropology the term is defined like this the quality of ambiguity or disorientation that occurs in the middle stage of a rite of passage, when participants no longer hold their pre-ritual status, but have not yet begun the transition to the status they will hold when the rite is complete. Liminal space is a little limbo, a pause between what has passed away and what is yet to be. How does this time of year fit that definition? This idea of thinning threshold between the world of the living and dying that is liminal. In practical and agricultural terms, we are at a transition between the plenty of summer and a difficult winter, a time when we honour what is gone and think about an unknown future and how we might plan for it. People at this time of year will often put on costumes and blur their identity, or experiment with the idea of being someone else. That too is liminality. These portrayals sometimes represent the deepest seated fears of our species. And so whilst on the threshold of this spooky season, why not head on over to Patreon to receive daily content to see you through Halloween, with October ghosts and tales of the macabre to delight you and ensure you receive some spooky delights. In addition, you'll gain access to all previous works and material as well as future content. The link is available in the podcast description notes, as well as links for all social media and the website. If you have any paranormal encounters and stories to share for this season, I'd love to hear from you, and maybe include some of your accounts in some upcoming episodes. You can leave a recording via the website, or send me a message. And now let's get started with today's podcast, where we're going to explore some dark cemetery tales and macabre history. Highgate Cemetery is one of the most haunted places in London, and with good reason. In the early 1800s, the city's population was over that of one million, and despite a high death rate, was only continuing to grow. Undertakers dressed up as clergymen to perform illegal ceremonies. Graves were crammed between shops, homes and taverns. Many people were buried in shallow graves and quickly covered with lime to quicken the decomposition of the body, and allow the grave to be used within a few months for another burial. The stench and disease were horrific. There was simply just not enough room for the dead. As a result of this growing problem, Parliament decided to intervene, and build seven private cemeteries in the countryside around London. These would be known as the Magnificent Seven. The third of these cemeteries, dated 1839, was Highgate, the sum of £3,500 was paid for 17 acres of land that had been the grounds of the Ashurst estate, 
descending the steep hillside from Highgate Village. Over the next three years, the cemetery was landscaped to brilliant effect by David Ramsey, with exotic formal planting, complemented by the stunning and unique architecture of both Geary and Bunning. It was this combination that was to secure Highgate as the capital's principal cemetery. On Monday the 20th of May, 1839, the cemetery was dedicated to St James by the Right Reverend Charles James Blomfield, Lord Bishop of London. Fifteen acres were consecrated for the use of members of the Church of England, and two acres set aside for dissenters, people who were not Church of England. Rites of burial were granted for either a limited period or in perpetuity. The first burial, on the 26th of May 1839, was Elizabeth Jackson, aged 36, of Little Windmill Street, Soho. The unparalleled elevation overlooking London, rising to 375 feet above sea level at its highest point, along with its unique architecture, meant that the wealthy would be encouraged to invest. The millionaire newspaper owner Julius Beer was one such investor, who built the cemetery's most impressive monument to his eight-year-old daughter Ada. Two chapels, one for the Church of England and the other for dissenters, were housed within one building, built in the Tudor Gothic style, topped with wooden turrets and a central bell tower. The archway beneath the bell tower gives an imposing entry to the cemetery. In the heart of the grounds was created the Egyptian Avenue, an imposing structure consisting of 16 vaults on either side of a broad passageway. These vaults were fitted with shelves for 12 coffins, and were purchased by individual families for their sole use. This avenue then led to the Circle of Lebanon, which was built in the same style and consisted of 20 vaults on the inner circle, with a further 16 added in the 1870s, built in the classical style. The circle was created by earth being excavated around an ancient cedar of Lebanon, a legacy of the Ashurst estate, and was used to great visual effect by the cemetery's designers. Above this, a separate Gothic-style catacomb, named the Terrace Catacombs due to its position on the site of the earlier terrace of Ashurst House, was completed in 1842. This was built with an impressive 80-yard frontage, and room for a total of 800 and 25 people in 55 volts, of 15 loci each, each loculus being sold individually to house one coffin. These were typical of the fashion for above-ground burial. Highgate was an eternal oasis of peace. It attracted a varied clientele over the next 20 years, and became one of the capital's most fashionable cemeteries. In 1854, the London Cemetery Company was so profitable that the cemetery was extended by a further 20 acres on the other side of its Swains Lane site. This new ground, now known as the East Cemetery, was opened in 1856. A tunnel between Swains Lane connected the new ground with the Church of England Chapel in the older West Side. With the aid of a hydraulic lift, coffins would descend into the tunnel and remain on cemetery ground for their passage to the other half of the cemetery. The first burial in the new ground took place on the 12th of June 1860, of one Mary Ann Webster, the 16-year-old daughter of a local baker. By that point there were over 10,400 graves within the older part of the cemetery. During a short period of this decade, an average of 30 burials a day took place, including the burial in the West Cemetery of Tom Sayers, the famous bare-knuckled prize fighter 
who to this day boasts the largest funeral in the history of the cemetery, with press reports of over 10,000 mourners in attendance, including Lion, his faithful dog, who is chief mourner. Unarguably the most famous interment in Highgate Cemetery is in the East Cemetery, and that is of the philosopher Karl Marx, who died in 1883. His grave must now be amongst the most visited in London. By the turn of the 20th century, the cemetery's fortunes sadly waned, with World War I decimating the staff, and by the end of World War II, the cemetery had all but been abandoned. In 1960, the gates to Highgate Cemetery were closed. Pristine landscaping became overgrown, and buildings tumbled in on themselves. And then the rumours and rituals began. Stories of men dressed in dark robes practising dark rituals surfaced. Ghosts and ghouls haunted the alleyways around the graveyard, and people reported seeing red-eyed demons staring at them through the fence. And then there was the tale of the Highgate Vampire, who was said to be a medieval nobleman who practised black magic in Romania. His coffin was brought from Europe to England in the 18th century, and his cult-like followers bought him a house in the West End. He was buried at the site that eventually became Highgate Cemetery, and slumbered peacefully until, according to reports, Satanists performed a ritual and woke him up. He's said to be a tall, dark figure that glides through the cemetery, his presence often announced by the sudden drop in temperature. He's caused clocks and watches to stop, and has been blamed for scores of dead foxes discovered on the grounds. The Highgate Vampire is just the beginning of the dark tales and wonders that the cemetery has to offer. The problems with the dead started during the Victorian period, with coffins that would explode. Highgate Cemetery has a series of tombs built for those who wanted to be buried above ground. Regulations at the time required tombs to be encased in lead, to prevent miasma leaking out. As the bodies decomposed in their hermetically sealed tombs, the build-up of gases caused some coffins to explode. The solution was to drill a small hole in the coffin, place a pipe within, and then light a match so the gases could burn off hygienically. Supernatural sightings at the Highgate Cemetery include a spectral cyclist who's been seen riding in front of the gates, a tall man wearing a top hat, and the shrouded figure, a morose female spectre who only looks up to the sky, ignoring everyone around her. If one would approach her, she would vanish, and reappear a little further away, doing the exact same thing. Many have also seen the ghost of a mad old woman. Her long grey hair blows behind her as she races amongst the graves looking for her children. People say she murdered them in a fit of rage. The ghost of a woman in white as well as the ghost of a nun have also been spotted. A figure wading into a pond, and a pale gliding form are seen often too. People also claim to have heard heart-stopping banshee wails, whispers, bells ringing, and footsteps. Today, 170,000 people are buried at Highgate Cemetery, 53,000 graves on 37 acres. It hosts the graves of some of history's most well-known figures and attracts enthusiasts of graveyards, the occult and the paranormal. Before we head back to the podcast, why not consider leaving a review via your favourite podcast platform or on the Haunted History Chronicles website? 
Your feedback is always really helpful in sharing the podcast with others. If you're interested in creating a home filled with Halloween and autumnal scents, then take a listen to this next insert. Hello, everyone of Michelle's awesome listeners. My name is Sarah, and I am an independent Sensi consultant. I have been listening to Haunted History Chronicles like you, and I would like to tell you about some awesome products for all of my paranormal friends like you. Scentsy is a safer alternative to candles. You just melt our wax with the heat of a low-watt light bulb or element and fill your space with fragrance, not flame, smoke, or soot. We have so many warmers for the spooky season coming up. Starting with Paranormal Pumpkin. This perfectly carved pumpkin will haunt your dreams in the best possible way. Turn it on for an eerie glow that will last long after the trick-or-treaters have gone to bed. It's hand-painted and seven inches tall. Or a favorite of mine, the haunting good time warmer. Up for a good fright? Fun is lurking in the shadows of this haunted house. Just lift the roof to warm your favorite fragrance. It is also hand-painted and ten and a half inches tall. We also have many warmers like the Ghoulish Grip that is three and a half inches tall. A skeletal hand grips its favorite brew while a dramatic color contrast is ready to turn some heads. Get ready for Halloween and fill your life with fragrance by visiting my website at sarahcsmells.sensi.us. That is Sarah with an H, C, smells.sensi.us. Thank you. And now let's get back to the podcast, where we're going to explore how the dead have often not been left to rest in peace and discover the macabre history of a particularly violent riot. The grave is supposed to be a final resting place. Sometimes, though, the post-mortem peace is shattered and a corpse disturbed. Graves have been robbed for reasons ranging from ransom to cannibalism, though the most common reason throughout history has probably been the profit motive. Throughout the 1800s, body snatchers in the United States and England sold corpses to anatomists for medical dissections. The practitioners of this unsavoury art came to be known as resurrectionists. The 18th and 19th century ushered in a medical interest around the world in detailed anatomy, thanks to the increase in the importance of surgery. In order for these physicians to study anatomy, human cadavers were needed. What ensued was something that would create long-lasting effects and change medical practices that still exist today in the present. In England as early as 1540, Henry VIII passed an edict allowing the worshipful company of barber surgeons the bodies of four executed criminals per year for the purpose of anatomical instruction. This, however, did not nearly meet the demand, and so in response to this shortage of bodies available to surgeons, the 1751 Act for Better Preventing the Horrid Crime of Murder was proposed and passed into law. This act would better become known as the Murder Act, and it dictated that it was necessary that some further terror and peculiar mark of infamy be added to the punishment of death. This further terror being that, after execution, criminals would be publicly dissected or gibbeted, thus providing a legal supply of corpses for anatomical purposes. The problem was with the expansion of medical schools, as many as 500 cadavers were needed annually, and therefore unsurprisingly, practices up and down the country 
had a drastic shortage of cadavers for medical instruction, and so they would turn often to elicit nefarious means to meet their demand, and resurrectionists or body snatchers, as they are also known, were commonly employed to exhume the bodies of the recently dead. Try and imagine this scene. A graveyard very late at night. The eerie still silence. Then these individuals, usually accompanied by a small young boy, would approach a newer grave and begin removing the earth from the top. Once the coffin was revealed, they would break through, and only then was the young boy deployed. Again nightmarish to think about as he would crawl through the hole and then wriggle down the coffin, over the corpse, so as to attach ropes around the body and allow those above ground to pull that body out. Rest in peace is a common epitaph on older gravestones, but this wasn't just a trite phrase given family members were genuinely concerned about their loved ones. Body snatching became so prevalent that it was not unusual for relatives and friends of someone who just died to watch over the body until burial, and then to keep watch over the grave after burial, to stop it being violated. Iron coffins too were used frequently, or the graves were protected by a framework of iron bars called mort safes. Mort safes were often very expensive for families to purchase on their own, and so many parishioners formed a mort safe society, which allowed them to buy mort safes as a group. Some graves were secured by bricking over the grave, or using metal-plated lids to protect wooden coffins. England during 1827 and 1828 would see a dimension being added to the trade of selling corpses with the likes of William Burke and William Hare, committing acts of murder to supply them with fresh corpses that they could then sell. The efforts of these men in groups like the London Burkers would see a select committee formed in 1828 to report on the problems in the resulting Act of 1832 as passed, and thus provided medical students with another, legitimate supply of corpses from workhouses and infirmaries. The poor and labouring population of England viewed this Act with absolute horror, as it allowed the unclaimed bodies of paupers, of poor, indigent, trod-upon groups, to be abused by the Bill. The Dead Bill Act, the Dissecting Bill, and the Bloodstained Anatomy Act were just some of the terms popularly used to refer to the Anatomy Act. The 1834 Poor Law that followed added to this unease. Peter Busey, a 19th-century Bradford Chartist, claimed in 1838 that if they were poor, they imprisoned them, then starved them to death, and then after they were dead, they butchered them. While this helped to reduce drastically the need for resurrectionists, what it also helped create was a battleground over bodies. An anatomical theatre in Cambridge was vandalised in late 1833 by an angry mob determined to stop the dissection of a man. Alarmed by further acts of violence and vandalism, the medical profession resolved to hide its activities from the general public, thus ending public dissections. In America, similarly to England, with the increase of several medical schools such as Philadelphia, Baltimore, New York and Columbia, so to increase the need for medical cadavers. Servants were known to be bribed by body snatchers, allowing them access to their dead master or mistress, and thus remove the body. Women were often employed to act as grieving mourners at funerals and provide the resurrectionists with information about troubles they may encounter when they return to the graveyard to steal the corpse. John Scott Harrison was the son of President William Henry Harrison, 
and the father of President Benjamin Harrison. He was also, despite his political prestige, the victim of body snatchers. According to a 1950 article in the Ohio History Journal, John Scott Harrison died and was buried in the family plot in North Bend, Ohio, in 1878. Body snatching was a problem at the time. Doctors craved corpses for anatomy lessons, and it was not yet legal to use unclaimed bodies for dissection in Ohio. Today, voluntary body donation programs allow medical students to learn anatomical lessons from corpses. To protect Harrison's body, his family interred him in a heavy vault and covered the vault with soil mixed with large rocks. But that didn't deter the resurrectionists. On the day of Harrison's funeral, mourners noticed that a nearby fresh grave that had contained the body of a man named Augustus Devon was empty. One of Harrison's sons was a friend of Devon's. He joined with a second friend and headed to Cincinnati's medical schools in search of these bodies. Instead, they found John Scott Harrison, hanging nude from a rope in a dark chute. Harrison's body had been snatched too. Naturally, this shocking episode created a sensation, reported the Ohio History Journal. Devin's body was later found preserved in a vat of brine at the University of Michigan Medical College. Sadly, when we examine history, we all too often see how the lower labouring and infringed parts of society often became a commodity in the body trafficking trade. For England, this would mean the trade of poor, unclaimed bodies from infirmaries, workhouses and asylums. In America, the bodies of enslaved workers were routinely used for anatomical study, and locations for medical schools often selected based on this availability. Public graveyards in America were arranged by a number of factors, such as social and economic standing, as well as by race, often meaning burial took place in a pauper cemetery outside of city limits. These graveyards were often located very close to schools of medicine and gave easy access to students and doctors to exhume bodies from these graves of the socially marginalised. Such activities were often so prevalent that they did not go unnoticed. In New York City during the cold winter of 1788, medical students and physicians capitalised on the colder weather, which was known to slow decomposition and were frequently observed exhuming bodies from the Black Cemetery. Newspapers that winter were rife with stories and reports. Petitions to the Common Council were submitted, the aim of which was not to stop grave robbing, but to ensure that it was conducted with decency and propriety. The petition was ignored, and showed a willingness by many to turn a blind eye to the matter, as long as it involved the poor and black members of society. By February of 1788, and the announcement in the advertiser of the body of a white woman stolen from Trinity Churchyard, popular anger and resentment began to rise to the surface, something that would grow in the following months. On April the 16th, 1788, as many as 20 would be killed in one of the first major riots post the revolution. Known as the Doctors' Riot, New York City would see anger and discontent levied against the medical profession because of the illegal procurement of bodies. Conflicting stories and accounts exist, detailing the events of how this uprising began. Some examples point to young children playing near the hospital, where they witnessed a surgeon dissecting an arm, which was then used to wave at them. Other stories would recount that one of the boys would be told by the surgeon that the arm belonged to his recently deceased mother. 
a mob of approximately 2,000 would march to the hospital and circle it before breaking in carrying shovels and picks. Upon entry they would become further enraged when they discovered several bodies in various stages of mutilation. Many of the hospital staff fled, with only a small number staying behind to try and guard the anatomical collections and specimens from the gathering mob, who were working quickly to drag the specimens into the street and set them ablaze. The local mayor was forced to intervene and secure the safe passage of the hospital staff to the jailhouse for protection. By the following day, the mob was searching the city for doctors, medical students and bodies, and other signs of dissection. They searched doctors' homes, student accommodation, the anatomical theatre, libraries and chapels. Armed with large rocks, stones, bricks and timber, a crowd of up to 5,000 by now would eventually gather outside of the jailhouse and begin attacking it demanding the doctor's hiding to be brought out. In vain, eminent local politicians would attempt to disperse the angry crowd, whilst inside medical students and doctors were arming themselves with the rocks and bricks being thrown at them so as to defend themselves. Several rounds of militia were called in for help, and when one such militiaman was injured by a brick to the skull, they began to fire at the crowd. What happened in New York was not an isolated incident. Railroads changed everything. The formation in 1828 of the nation's first common carrier, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, revolutionised transportation, altered people's sense of time and place, and knitted America together into a nation. Among the many unforeseen consequences of this transformation was this peculiar note. Body snatchers digging up graves could quickly ship corpses to medical schools, needing dissection material. The story of how grave robbing flourished in Baltimore for more than 70 years reveals both the dysfunctional underside of medicine in a place that liked to call itself the Monumental City, as well as its racial fault line. Baltimore became a centre of resurrectionists because a half-dozen medical schools in the city needed a steady supply of corpses. It also helped that the Maryland's largest population centre was located in a temperature zone that often allowed digging in winter when the ground in New England and in the Midwest froze solid. The plunderers began by shoveling at the head of a freshly buried coffin, breaking the lid, placing a hook around the deceased's armpit or neck, and with the help of a rope, easing the body out of the grave. For shipment elsewhere, the corpses were folded into barrels filled with whiskey to mask the odour. At the destination, a medical school took the remains for dissection. And that wasn't the end of it. The rot-gut whiskey was sold to all comers as stiff drinks. Grave robberies and body trafficking for profit were distinctly Anglo-Saxon phenomena. In Central Europe, the authorities by now were usually distributing unclaimed corpses to medical schools. No such mechanism existed in the United States by this point, so medical schools needing dissection material acquired corpses the best way they could, by sending janitors, students and medical doctors to rub fresh graves. Such pillaging, while technically a misdemeanour, was seldom prosecuted. Politicians protected it in the name of common good, and the police looked the other way, unless forced to take action. Lawyers argued that because the previous occupant had vacated the body, its ownership was in doubt, so why bother? There was no victim, or so lawyers contended, unless a cemetery sued 
which never happened because many were in cahoots with resurrectionists. In 1880, grave robbery brought Baltimore's body-snatching racket into the headlines for a time, highlighting the State University's central role. The story began with Mrs Elizabeth Joyner's bad dream. Her niece, Jane Smith, had been buried earlier that evening, and the more the Federal Hill matron tossed and turned, the more she became convinced that grave robbers had stolen the body afterward. In the morning, the handsomely attired lady from a wealthy and respectable family went to Baltimore Cemetery, a 100-acre hillside necropolis that still exists at Gay Street and North Avenue. There in disturbed earth she found the evidence, a crucifix that Jane had worn to the grave when she was laid to rest next to her mother, who died six months earlier. Now four robbers, all medical school janitors, had pillaged both graves. In the darkness they first opened Jane's mother's grave by mistake, Reburying her would take too much time, so they took her putrid remains, and the school used her skeleton. Supervising this expedition was Professor Jensen, a 45-year-old Danish medical student who dug up and sold corpses, shipping them as far west as St. Louis and south to Atlanta. He solicited advance orders for winter deliveries, as a merchant contracts for pork and other goods, one critic said, when the ground froze in the north. No one admitted involvement. Dr L. McLean Tiffany, the medical dean at Maryland, stated that, so far as his personal knowledge goes, no corpses of the description had been taken there. Then an anonymous postcard surfaced, saying that two coloured men had taken Jane's body to where the University of Maryland conducted dissections. Students there had gasped when they witnessed her naked body. Whoever the freckle-faced young woman was on the dissecting slab, she was nothing like the ravaged wretches that came from the potter's fields. Even with her hair shorn, Jane Smith exuded refinement. A grand jury indicted Jensen, along with Emile A. Runge, a white janitor at the University of Maryland Medical School, and two coloured dissecting room helpers, William Warren and Ezekiel Williams. The medical school dean Tiffany bailed them out. To defend them, the university provided one of the state's most influential lawyers, John P. Poe. He was the law dean, soon to be attorney general, a white supremacist democrat who would expel both students from the university and impose segregation for decades. But then he defended grave robbers. Judge Pinckney, without a jury, found the accused men innocent. The testimony implicated Jensen in the affair, but it was not such as to warrant a verdict of guilty, he ruled. Frequently being involved in grave robbery had no adverse consequences to the culprit's career. Dr Winslow, the medical demonstrator at Maryland, had previously relied on Jensen's services, but when that source dried up, he began digging himself. He was apprehended at 5.30pm one October afternoon in 1883, with a coloured helper, shovels and bags. Nevertheless, Winslow, a Quaker from a North Carolina plantation family, went on to an illustrious career as an eye and ear, nose and throat specialist at the University of Maryland, becoming president of the American Surgical Association, the Southern Surgical and Gynecological Association, and the Baltimore Medical Association. His papers are archived at the Smithsonian's Museum of American History and include material about grave robbing. To be fair, grave robbing in Baltimore had been thriving for six decades before Johns Hopkins Medical School opened in 1893. 
That year, 1,200 students in the city's seven medical schools had to contend with a meagre total of 49 cadavers, legally received from official sources. Thus, from the first day onward, Hopkins was confronted with a shortage of bodies. Its much-anticipated inaugural dissection on November the 15th had to be delayed until a proper human subject could be found. A janitor was put in charge of securing a reliable supply of corpses. Nicknamed King Bill, William Hartley kept a sorrel mare, carriage, sleigh, picks and shovels in the basement of the anatomy building. Thus equipped, he and his wife roamed around searching for fresh graves or bodies left unguarded at the city morgue. His reputation grew. Hopkins soon had 20 cadavers in an icebox built to hold five. Potter's fields for the poor and forgotten were among other preferred marauding destinations, as was the Bayview Asylum, now a satellite medical campus of Hopkins. There in a section in the woods, simple pine boxes were laid out in open pits under a thin veneer of earth cover until a section filled up. Pickings were easy, and resurrectionists raided Bayview day and night, once in the middle of the asylum's board meeting. Even today, old-timers who live near the Hopkins Medical School remember having been warned as children to be back home before streetlights came on, or else a John Hopkins doctor will catch you and cut you up. Medical riots plagued the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries, and would result in legislature preventing grave robbing as well as legislating the supply of cadavers. It wasn't until 1900s, several years after the State Anatomy Board was created to allocate unclaimed corpses, that the trafficking ended. The board was headed by the Hopkins anatomist Franklin Moore. Bodies that could not be used immediately were kept in cold storage at Hopkins. Any school in good reputation was entitled to them. Licensing systems were established, meaning that medical students could no longer attend a few lectures and become a practising doctor. History has shaped medical practices today from country to country, all of which we see similar events as discussed here can be found. Whilst body snatching is no longer as prevalent, illegal harvesting of organs, bones and bodies still exists, meaning that some still do not get to rest in peace and death. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye for now. If you like this podcast, there's a number of things you can do. Come and join us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Spread the word about us with friends and family. Leave a review on our website or other podcast platforms. To support the podcast further, why not head on over to join us on Patreon, where you can sign up to gain a library of additional material and recordings, and in the process know you're helping the podcast continue to put out more content. On a final note, if you haven't read it already, then you can find my piece In Search of the Medieval in Volume 3 of The Feminine Macabre over on spookeats.com or via Amazon. Links to the book will also be in the episode description. Thank you everyone for your amazing support. Thank you.